Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast has paved the way for men and women of colour who follow in his footsteps into the vocation of policing. As the first black man in Surrey Constabulary when he joined, retired Chief Superintendent Victor Elisa, QPM, knew that his presence in Surrey Police was the first of its kind. He knew he was different, but he didn't allow it to prevent him from achieving the incredible success he did in over 30 years in UK policing. From his time in Surrey Police to the City of London and then on to the Metropolitan Police, where all of Victor's experiences would lead him to be placed into Haringey as the borough commander, during a period in which the community was grappling with its relationship with police as the findings into the death of Mark Duggan were to be determined as either lawful or unlawful by a jury after he was shot by police. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Victor and I discuss these incredible challenges, his time in UK policing and whether policing is in fact institutionally racist or rather just institutionally incompetent. And the moment he sat in a small room with colleagues and senior community leaders as the then Assistant Commissioner Mark Rowley addressed the hostile crowds outside the Royal Courts of Justice after the jury had reached its verdict into the police shooting of Mark Duggan. All of this and much more next on Protect and Serve.
Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And this week, I'm incredibly honoured to be sitting down with a man I followed closely in 2015 when I was working as a sergeant in the outback of Australia. I was always keen to see and learn from others who had led their communities during difficult times. And retired Chief Superintendent Victor Elisa QPM, who joins me this morning, was one of those incredible leaders who I watched from a distance as I observed him through the TV documentary, The Met, Policing London. In this series, which aired for the first time in 2015, I watched Victor support the Haringey community and his colleagues through what would only be described as an incredibly tough period in the borough's history. When the findings into the death of Mark Duggan were delivered in 2013, the riots that were seen two years prior in 2011 across London and the UK could have quite easily have repeated themselves. But they didn't, and that in part was down to the incredible leadership of my next guest joining me this morning. Victor, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you on the show. How are you this morning? Um, good morning, Ollie. I'm really good, thank you. Um, enjoying the spring weather and, um, uh, like you, really excited, slightly nervous of being on the show because I've listened to some of it before, but uh, really excited and privileged to uh, to be here and, and, and share some of my experience with, uh, with you and your listeners. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And like you may have heard in other shows, like every good detective, we really wind back the time clock and start right at the beginning and I know you came from a very strong university background in, into policing, but what was the decision-making process that you went through to identify that policing was a vocation that you wanted to pursue? Really interesting, actually. Um, I, I never, you know, I had a, uh, a, a desire or a plan to become a police officer from an early age. Um, although having said that, my grandfather um, on my mother's side uh, in Nigeria was a was a police officer. Um, wow. I, I knew a little bit of that, but that wasn't a massive influence, but it certainly did um, did help after I joined. But um, uh, so I, I went to university and at university uh, at the time, so I was at university between 1979 and 82 and I studied biochemistry. Um, and in the second year, you do like a work placement, which I did in a in a local hospital um, near Egham, where the university was in Surrey, Egham in Surrey. Um, and I realised working in a, in a hospital lab, um, which was type, the type of work I would have done as a biochemistry, as a biochemist, uh, wasn't really um, what I wanted to do, what I, I saw as my future. And um, so in the third year, I mean, I played a lot of football. In the third year, one of the um, mates that played football um, was looking at policing. He was looking at work and everything else and looking at policing. And the police at the time were doing what they called a three-day um, awareness uh, time with, with service. So they were, they were looking at students who were likely to, already about to graduate, taking them for three days and showing them around the fours and actually trying to encourage them to join. And he came back and when we were going to football on a Wednesday and a Saturday, he just did not stop talking about how wonderful, magnificent, the things that he's seen, how exciting policing was. Um, and, and it really, you know, um, interested me. And I, so I did a bit of research into it, looked at it, you know, all the blurb, as you would imagine, described it as a, an exciting profession, yeah. one that you could progress in, one that you could actually, you know, it's a public service, you could serve the, the public. 
Um, and the clincher for me was that he paid more than being a biochemist. Uh, and so, and so at the end of, uh, of my degree, um, or coming towards the end of my degree, I applied. I applied to become a, a police officer uh, and applied to um, Surrey, where I was studying at the time, applied to Kent and applied to the Met. Um, and Surrey were, you know, quite um, prompt in responding, interviewed, um, offered a post and I, and I joined Surrey Police in, um, in uh, 1982. So 1982, you walk through the gates of the training college in Ashford in Kent. You know, I often talk, I often talk about the, the challenges of, of family reflecting on loved ones joining the police. What was the response that you had from family members when you told them this is the direction you were heading in? Uh, I, I think initially my mother was shocked, um, and, and, and shocked in a in a concerning way, um, because you can imagine at the time the the um, stories and the news report that you hear about policing yeah. painted it as a dangerous occupation. Um, so she was shocked. She was just thinking, well, you know, you've studied biochemistry. And you're now going to move into a profession that's um, inherently more dangerous than being a biochemist. Um, also, at the time, you know, um, the, the the image of the police wasn't one of an institution that was welcoming to um, uh, someone who's black or Asian. Uh, and she was concerned about that in the sense of, you know, might face discrimination and life might be really difficult. Um, and, and the final one was, well, you've just gone through a a university study and a degree um, and policing wasn't seen as a profession at the time, it was seen as a job. So her initial response was, um, I'm really concerned that you've decided to join the police. My dad was similar, but not to a lesser extent concerned because he was thinking, okay, you'd have given, you'd have thought about this. Um, but I have to say over time, as I said, as I said earlier on, um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a police officer so that probably contributed to her concern because policing in Nigeria as you can imagine was very different to policing in in the UK and he did he'd had mm. a particularly tough time um in terms of progression in the police so she saw all that um so that was that was family sisters were too young to to really say much but their view was similar to my mum in the sense of you know be careful it's going to be a tough occupation um, friends were great. Friends were, were were great in the sense of they tried to play it down. You know, they tried to play down the the um, the dangers and the challenges. You know, and and they knew that and they'd had experience with police officers, some of which had not been good. And these are both black and white friends, some of which had not been good. And they tried to play it down by saying things like, you know what, Vic. Um, they got a lot of you know names for uh, for coppers. You know, you going in there, they're going to have a bit more for you. Um, you know, which might sound malicious, but the type of northern humour was you know in a way trying to you know trying to get me reassured that there are there were people you know that I know, friends, family who were going to support my decision. So it was one of shock, but I guess over time, um, parents came to accept it when I joined and became really supportive. And friends, you know, um, became supportive as well in the sense of, look, I could talk openly with uh, with friends when we went out for drinks, you know. Um, I mean, I joined, sorry, but I was from Manchester originally. You can talk openly about being a police officer without, um, you know, fear of your friends walking away, uh, which they didn't do, or other people probably intervening. 
So initial stages, surprise, shock, but support was there um, very, very early on. Did you realise on the first day of your arrival to the training college, the significance of your particular attendance and the fact that you were the first black male that had been recruited by Surrey Police in its history and the significance that that had? Uh, Yes, Um, because it was... um, uh, it, it, it sounds so. It sounds so trite to say now, um, because I was different. Um, but I was different, as I saw it, not just purely because of my skin colour. But you know, there weren't many graduates joining the police at the time, uh, so I was different as a graduate. Um, I was different in terms of working in a in a in a southern force when I'm from up north. Uh, and like I said, all these things might sound. Um, um, minor but they were significant in the sense of that sense of difference gave me a pride um mm. gave me what i saw as opportunities to be able to contribute um to policing um but what i hadn't realized um was one the style of studying and two the the um rigidness to process. So as, as an example, you know, in is a 10 weeks training course, went to a regional training centre. Uh, and for sorry, that was Ashford in Kent, um, Ashford Training Centre. And every week you had a test. And it was a pass rate of the test was 72%. And coming from university and studying biochemistry in the third year, you had a, a significant amount of leeway doing research. I thought, you know, uh, the best way to approach the test was to be descriptive, effusive, um, in actual fact, the, the skill for doing the test was to go in there, answer the questions and not think too much about it. Yeah. Uh, and my first result, I got 72% and I was disappointed that I'd just scraped through the pass mark. Um, but what I then had to realise is that my difference, and although I saw it as a positive, could have become a hindrance. You know, uh, you had to stop thinking... Yeah, graduate, intelligent, I'm going to do this a different way, I'm going to contribute in a different way. I I needed to learn very quickly that you had to fit into the system. Um, And by fitting in through the system, you develop trust, you got through, you got through your your test and everything else without sticking out. Um, And you got through your test without failing. Because one of the other things I learned on there, when I got there, I said every every week I had a test, every five weeks, halfway through the course, you had a test that determined whether or not you continued. And if you failed that five weeks, you could be thrown out. And when wow. I got to Ashfield, there was only one other officer who was um, in a mixed heritage. And um, he'd failed his test on that fifth week, came back on the sixth week, retook it, failed it, and he was kicked out. And as you can imagine, um, looking back on it now, people t- took great delight in actually pointing out to me those were the dangers. Um, you know, you could be kicked out, and, um, and and that added pressure on onto onto me in the sense of you know I, I, it made me think very quickly. Um, yeah, you can be different, but just make sure that you actually understand the system, and you get through the test and the processes and the things by which you are judged as to whether or not you're going to make a a good officer, or you're going to be suitable to stay in as a police officer. 
how did you find the sort of physical components of the training, you know, in terms of learning new skills and tactics around operational safety? Were they something that you thrived in that environment or that was that equally sort of a challenge? Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed the physical part, except for except for the swimming. Um, <laughs> I, 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 dis- I dislike swimming. Um, but it became a real, a real challenge. So if, if you're not a swimmer, if you swam for pleasure, which I did, um, and, and as an example, you know, the, the swimming uh, sessions, 30 minutes, and uh, you started off by five lengths of the pool, you know, three on your front, two on your back, and then you started doing all the exercises. Well, by the time I, I did four lengths, you know, my arms were like jelly, my feet were like jelly, and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to sink, you know. But then you <laughs> knew you had another 25 minutes in the pool. Um yeah, swimming was a real challenge. But the physical part, I mean, I, I enjoyed sport. I, I, like I said, I played football. Um, I was good at, um, at track and field, you know. Um, so the physical part was a real enjoyment. And, um, and the physical part really um, was, was um, a welcome break from, you know, the style of learning in the classroom, which is... Which is um, wrote and 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 you learned and repeated which i really didn't enjoy so the physical bit i could deal with uh, really easily i enjoy dealing with it and it brought um real companionship you know it brought the team that the, the the class i was in it brought us together because there were um there were other um colleagues on there you know one was a a pe teacher who joined the police another one was a a um a professional footballer in the academy who, you know, got injured. Um, and there was a, a swimmer um, amongst the group who was a brilliant swimmer. And I think he, he ended up swimming for the um, um, British police. So we had a class of of um, men and women, or as we were then, probably young young men and women, um, who enjoyed the sports side of, of life. So I, I fitted in really well and enjoyed that really well. What about, well, you know, we often talk about by today's standards, sort of discipline and and what that looks like in terms, because it was so vastly different back in the 80s in terms of, you know, there being a drill sergeant who would teach you how to march, who'd make sure that your appearance was was first class in terms of your shirts were ironed, you'd had a shave, you were, you were neatly dressed, you know, your trousers were pressed. What, how, is, how are those standards in terms of when you sort of reflect on by today's standards? Um, I, I think... And people will say today it's, it's very different from, you know, uh, 40 years ago when I joined and, and people, we should be, we, I keep saying we, you know, the police institution should be uh, more liberal, more relaxed. And it's the quality of the um, service that officers deliver are more important than the appearance. Um, and interestingly enough, having conversations at the moment uh, with, a, with a force that I'm working with about whether or not we sh- they should continue you know drill uh, and a parade square on a regular basis uh, my view my view is that i think is an essential part of policing um and i think it ought to remain an essential part of policing today for several reasons but if i give you two one i think it builds a sense of a standard um that people ought to adhere to um and by building that standard you learn to work with colleagues in a way that you appreciate, in a way that you start from a really good base. My view is policing is a team um, um, 
occupation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you, and you, you know, you, you, you have images of great individual detectives, fictional, but the reality is great detectives in reality work as a team. Uniform officers work as a team. Even when you get to a situation where you have community policing, as we used to call it back in the 80s, neighbourhood policing today, they're part of a team. You might see an individual officer, a couple of officers walking around for most of the time, but they're part of a team. And by having that standard together, then, you know, you, you work better as a team. And the other one was, you know, and this is more personal, when I, you know, when I joined, I, you know, I, I, I was smart and I, you know, I had my clothes and everything else. But when you got to a stage where you had to aim your, your, your uniform to a standard and it required a certain amount of skill, and we had um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of officers who joined from the army, they were ex-army officers, and they taught us a humongous amount in terms of how to get a crease on your trousers. And it sounds really antiquated now and old-fashioned, but, you know, the old brown paper, you know, on a steam iron and getting a really <laughs> sharp crease on your trousers, crease on your, you know, and, 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 you know, on your shirt and, and bullying your boots. But, you know, what that does is almost like a socialisation process because, yeah. you know, in the evening when you finished your lessons, you know, you would get together and you went through this, what appeared as a routine, but you were learning how to do something that made all of you, brought all of you to a standard so you were proud to get on the parade square, looking smart and actually looking and being a part of the team and maintaining the standard of the team and comparing yourself to others. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, you know, that's um, that type of um, competitiveness can be damaged and can be destructive. But that type of competitiveness means that you were absolutely clear in what you needed to do with your team, you know, and in a positive way, and I can understand some people are probably thinking, well, in a negative way, that can be really destructive. But, you know, there are negative things in life and it's how you lead and prevent that is important. But in a positive way, it built up, you know, a sense of pride, a sense of worth, and a sense of wanting to deliver a service mm. um, that, you know, your colleagues would be proud of and people would be proud of. So in a personal sense, I thought it was a really good way of actually learning together and understanding people and actually your appearance, making your appearance the best it can be. And I'll just finish with, with, a, with, a, with a little anecdote. I remember when I was at... Um, at school, and our sports teacher, you know, when they played football, he used to turn up on the football pitch. And at, at the time, you didn't have to wear shin pads, but he always insisted you put a shin pad on, you pulled your socks up, you tucked your shirt in, into your shorts. And his one reason for saying that is that if you look smart, if you look the part, people will think, yeah, people will look at you differently. Indeed. And I think that's the same as a police officer. If a police officer looks smart, he or she will gain respect at the first appearance. And I think that's really important. Your graduation must have been an incredibly proud day, not only for yourself to have achieved what is required of anybody to to go through the whole police training, but for your parents and your family. Oh, it was tremendous. It really was. It was, um, was, you know, we go back to the last question, just to be able to to march, um, to to display a skill that I'd learned, that I, you know, I, I... I didn't have when I joined 10 weeks earlier. I see it's a march in sequence and everything else. Again, that might sound to some people really trivial, but it's something that I did not have and I'd learnt and I could, 
I could do in sequence with everybody else in a really positive way. Um, so, so you know, I, I really enjoyed that. And um, there was a, there was a, there was a um, a funny bit really in, in in terms of the parade. You get inspected by a senior officer, and um, and before we we got out on the parade, the um, classmates were saying, you know, what are the odds that you will get approached? And I bet you the uh, inspector officer stops at you and has a word. And we had a little bet of whether or not it would happen. And um, you know. Um, righteous rain when the inspector officer got to me he actually stopped in front and uh, and he said to me and um, what did you do before you you joined and I said I was a student sir um, what did you study I said I studied biochemistry and um, and there was like a, a five second silence uh, and I guess he was probably thinking what the hell is he doing in that <laughs> <service>? <laughs> and then he said well not much call for police for biochemist in the police at the moment, um, but I hope you have a wonderful career. And he walks off, and that uh, <laughs> was that was quite humorous. Um, but yeah, on, on the parade day it was fantastic. You know, it was just uh, just the the relief of getting through the ten weeks um, and getting it through um, at a really good standard um, and making the friends and the learning. Uh, and 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 it was a, a it was a a rite of passage, if I can use that phrase. Um, and it really was a proud moment to have actually got through the challenge of the different style of learning, the physical bits, the, you know, the, 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 the change in your appearance and everything else, and the preparation for what was, uh, you know, I hoped was going to be um, a, a really wonderful and productive uh, career. So it's a, it a, it's a massive milestone in anybody's career, and it was in mine, um, the, the graduation and passing out day. Let's talk about the first five years, because there's a, there's, a, there's a huge difference between what is the training part of policing and your instructors trying to give you ultimately a very realistic you know, set of scenarios over various different weeks of training, whether it be revising and carrying out sort of a scenario around the Theft Act or whether it be attending a you know, a, a traffic accident or dealing with domestic violence or a sudden death. There are so many different training scenarios which are developed. However, they're never real, you know, in terms of you're not on the road dealing with real people, real emotions and real problems that you've really got to get to the bottom of as an investigator and as a police officer to help people get their lives sort of back to a normal playing field for them, whatever the situation is that's been presented. How did you find those first few years in terms of dealing with challenging situations, often confronting and traumatic scenes. Obviously, as a probationary constable, you would have attended scenes of sudden death. How did you cope with those sorts of very often challenging emotive jobs in the early part of your career? It was um, every single every single day was a, was a learning experience. Um, and, and, you know, Ollie, you're right. In at training school, you get taught about the, the what, um, and you, you and, and you got taught about the legislation and everything else. What you didn't get taught about a great deal, which was a significant difference, was the how and sometimes the why. You know, and and you talk about so you have a scenario. Um, you know, let's take one of a of a domestic dispute, and the scenario would be, um, you know, fairly clear, uh, but it will be it will be um, you know offence related it'll be enforcement related you know you could talk to the part to the couple um but the whole intention was you know you always had the power to do abc but in reality it's so so much different um you know you can get into a situation where 
there hasn't been a a physical um, attack or assault. There had been verbal um, intimidation, but then there's a complexity of um, you know how you deal with the emotions of of married life. How do you deal with the emotions that, that you know the people that you've gone to are displaying that um, you know it's a tense situation, but they want to be together. How do you confront you know you've got um, children in, in the house who you know understand to a certain degree what's going on um, but also frightened about what's happening so all these things you you have to learn and come to a decision and then you come and, and over the years the instructions of domestic violence have changed um, yeah with you know try and resolve the situation as best as you can uh, and actually leave it to and then pass it on to officers to follow up to positive arrest policy getting there if there's any sign of arrest and everything else so the instructions have changed over the years but very very little training about you know the the how um meant you had to learn every single day and uh, and i use that as an example but it's a whole range there's a whole range of of uh, situations you have to deal with social encounters that you have to deal with that are not um catered for in legislation that are not enforcement enforcement is not the best way to deal with it um so in those early years, it was it was a, a massive learning process, and that's where for me, um, the tutor constables uh, came in really useful. The experienced officers came in really useful because you can bounce ideas off them. You know, you can try things, you can bounce ideas off them, you can talk through things with them, and you can get some reassurance of as to decisions you made, whether they're the best decisions or not. And you learnt for um, another occasion when you got sent to a similar incident or a similar job or just dealing with um, with situations so by 1987-88 you were promoted to the rank of sergeant working in the area of response and then shortly thereafter you transferred out of Surrey police to the city of London police had you had you had sort of leadership in those first five years you sort of laid the strong foundations of your policing career had you seen others lead and thought yourself I can do that I'd like to do that it looks like a great opportunity to be able to support officers below me with lesser experiences was leadership something that you're always going to pursue um it was something I was always interested in so I, I've, I never joined with a clear focus or intention for promotion um and um had I done so I may have ended up at a different rank I don't know but uh, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed all the um, all the opportunities that were available. So moving into different areas of work, so from uniform to investigative work to you know working on projects, I enjoyed all those things. And then as, and, and and clearly as, as that happened, uh, I looked at you know people around me. So f- in the early stages, my tutor constable, who was absolutely brilliant, um, had a different persona, different. Uh, characteristics um, different behavioral style to me but he was really really supportive in uh, in the sense of he was absolutely thorough in everything that he did you know he crossed every t and dotted every i and and the initial stages i'm thinking well we could speed this up we can move on not cut corners but we can move on a little bit further we can do a little bit more um but his philosophy was get it absolutely accurate there's no rush. There's time for you to get this thing right. Getting it right is more important than rushing through 
and getting through masses and masses of stuff. Um, yeah. So I learned through that and clearly, and, and I had really brilliant sergeants um, who were a combination of, you know, so the type of thing, really simple. You go out on patrol, um, you come out at the end of uh, the patrol, there was always one of the sergeants, two of the sergeants there, and they would go through you. How have you gone? How have you done today? You know, have there been any challenges? Um, anything you want to talk about? And before they, you know, they, they made sure that they signed everybody off at the end of the shift. And I know that that's not possible now because of, you know, the lack of the lesser number of people, lack of sergeants, all the structural things have changed. But in terms of your question, those are the type of things that I learned as it developed in terms of. As a supervisor, as a sergeant, it is imperative that you look after your people. Um, you know, whether you remained at the end of the shift to actually make sure everybody's gone off, or whether you left instructions everyone's gone off, or whether you made sure that you check back afterwards, but always look after your people when they're working, when they go off. Always, always make sure, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the work is done, the paperwork is done, reports are done, and you've tidied everything up as much as you can, and you're aware. Um, and, and for senior constables, you know, there's always the support. There's always, you know, um, you could approach them and actually just say, I've done this and I'm not sure if it's right. I've done this. What do you think? Really great. The praise was there. The direction was there. And when there needed to be criticism, criticism was there. So there's that trust in being able to have conversations with people. And those are the things that formed, you know, my learning. And when I looked at you know wanting to be a sergeant I thought I could be a sergeant I thought you know I had enough in terms of learning I had enough in terms of um, character to be able to work as a team you know um, and and be the leader in the sense of I could share my knowledge with them but I could take responsibility when things didn't go well and that's the way I saw the role of being a sergeant you know not somebody who's dragging people from A to B giving them direction and everything else which is important but actually create an environment in which they can work, you know, by giving them information in terms of legislation, law, what they needed to do, giving them guidance in the way that they actually approach um, incidents, giving them guidance in the way they appeared, you know, and your appearance is also important. So I, I picked all those things up and I developed confidence. And after about, you know, um, three, four years, uh, I got the opportunity, after three years, got the opportunity to act, um, act up, you know, as an acting sergeant. Um, which was which was a massive learning experience, but really challenging um, because I joined a team, uh, unlike now where officers are joining teams where the length of service of officers is is not long. I joined a team where officers had 17, 18, 20 years service, really experienced officers, uh, and after three years, <laughs> you were acting as a sergeant. Um, with some of those officers so it was clear to me there was no way I was going to be directing them um, because I didn't have the experience um, to do so but what I did have was you know the ability to be able to work together take responsibility learn from them uh, and I had their respects and and that is the one thing that makes you a successful leader having the respect of the people that you're working with. Um, and, that, and that gave me great confidence. And, you know, and, and I did that at two different stations. And I was fortunate enough to be promoted to sergeant with less than five years service. Um, and that gave you a taste, you know, I gave you a, a taste and a confidence for them progressing. But those are my early experiences in terms of leadership. 
What prompted the move out of Surrey to the City of London Police in 1990? I um, I thoroughly enjoyed Surrey. Um, I worked in um, two big towns, uh, Guildford and Woking. Um, I worked with some magnificent people. Um, I, I got to the stage where I thought I fancied something different. Um, I thought I fancied something more challenging, and that, that sounds disrespectful to Guildford and Walking, but it's not. You know, there were really busy places and, and lots of learning uh, as a police officer, as a human being. Um, um, but I, I just, I, I had professional itchy feet. Um, and, uh, and at the time, um, I mean, you know, when we were at training school, we met um, City of London police officers. I met City of London police officers who were, you know, I thought they were great. The uniform was brilliant. Um, and uh, the, the, the level of care that they got, so example, the type of thing, you know, you, you, you needed to work two weekends um, on, on patrol, um, patrolling the, the training centre. Um, and for all the forces that were there, you didn't get paid, but the city of London police officers got paid for working the weekend, which I thought, well, that's, that's really good. Um, and, you know, so... I looked at when I looked at moving somewhere else. I looked at the Met, um, and, and I I did try to transfer lateral transfer into the Met as a sergeant. For some reason, that didn't happen. Um, I never understood why. Uh, and the city were advertising, so I thought, you know, I'd give the city a try. And at the time, um, they just reduced their height um, limit because I think the city started off at six foot four, then went down to uh, six foot one, and I think at the time they just um, reduced it to five nine. Um, and the city is a completely different force, and I thought I quite fancy a bit of, um, you know, if I could get into the fraud squad in the city, which is what um, the area in which the city specialised at the time, um, and I, I thought, you know, it would give me a good uh, knowledge in terms of investigation, very different from um, um, detective work on, on dealing with assaults and violence and that kind of thing. So I applied, applied to to join the city, and remarkably, remarkably, the um, I, I found the process really straightforward in getting through. And I guess the probably the reason for that was I was really relaxed. You know, um, I wanted to move, but it wasn't a big deal, and I wasn't stressed. And I guess that feeling of relaxation, preparation, going in, uh, and actually just thinking, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't then, you know, uh, I'm not going to be too disappointed because I, I like where I am. I, I think that paid off in, in, in clearly what I exuded in the interview. Um, and, and I did well in the interview and I got um, offered a job in the city and I, I moved over after eight years in, in Surrey, I moved over to the city in 1990. You know, if we look at some of the significant differences between the challenges of county forces and you look at the city of London, you know, in 1993, there was the Bishopsgate bombing at the hands of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, which led to the death of one person. Good evening. A tipper truck packed with explosives went off in the city of London this morning. It killed one man and injured more than 40 other people. The bomb exploded in Bishopsgate near the NatWest Tower. The police had received coded warnings about a bomb in a tipper truck left a short distance from the city's most visible landmark, the NatWest Tower. The paramedics were among the first on the scene and could scarcely believe the devastation. It, it is uh, quite a shocking thing to have uh, a whole lot of people walk through your door covered in blood and, and shaking and in tears. And it, it has an effect on the staff, of course. We will have to counsel them after the incident is over. 
Those are probably some of the significant differentiating factors between working in a metropolitan city and working in a county force. What was what was that period like for you with those sorts of threats that existed? You know, in terms of understanding that the, the threats were very real and that it, it could potentially result in serious injury of anybody. You know, in terms of the threat that was posed. Oh, it, it was um, at that time. It was a um, it was a milestone moment, if I can use that phrase for the city, because I mean the city. I, I mean, there were the um, um, there were the terrorist attacks going on. Uh, around the country and and you know I was very much aware of that um prior to joining um sorry there'd been the uh, the bombing of the horse and groom pub in in Guildford um three years prior to that um so that was very evident very clear that the risk um from terrorist attack um and although the city was a target there hadn't been any significant attacks so the Bishopsgate um, bomb, um, bombing was the second one. The first one was at St Mary Axe uh, about two years before. Um, and at the time, you know, the, 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 the risk of the city had increased significantly. Um, and, and this was, and, and you talk about the risk and everything else, and this was really interesting because I'd finished work uh, about five o'clock on, um, on the day of the St Mary Axe bomb. Um, and the call had come in and um, one of my colleagues, inspector who was working, was, um, who was on duty and, and chatting to him days later and he was saying that they'd, they'd come on on late turn, the call had come in, code word had been given, which was what happened at the time, the code word had been verified, but the location had been given as um, um, the stock exchange outside the Bank of England. And um, and we'd, you know, we'd had all the training and everything else and the you know safe distance and clear the public away and uh, and then call in the um, explosive team and then the the, the uh, location had been given and, uh, and and the inspector Bob had gone to um, the stock exchange and there was a white van parked outside uh, the stock exchange outside the Bank of England and he's saying it stupidly uh, and we did this as cops at the time stupidly um, went, walked towards this thing to check at the back of the van and looking at it and thinking there's probably not a lot in here and uh, and Bob saying this is actually looking into the back, the back of the van is this massive explosion and um, and there was moment of just absolute silence you know one or two seconds of absolute silence and then there was just pandemonium um, you know building alarms going off car alarms going off the sound of you know glass exploding debris falling down and 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 Bob saying after he's thinking, I should be dead. And then he opens his, he looks around thinking, what's going on? Clearly, wow. fortunately and unfortunately, um, they got the location wrong or they couldn't get to the stock exchange and they'd placed the, um, uh, the, 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 the lorry outside the Baltic exchange which is just up probably about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, if that, probably not even that, a quarter of a mile off from the stock exchange. Now, you know, we don't, we don't know why that happened, but the place is outside the, the, the Baltic exchange. Fortunately for the police officers, they were at the wrong venue. Unfortunately, um, for those people who were killed, um, it'd been a night of, of, of an election. People were coming around um, in, in the city celebrating... 
um, and moving around. The officers had cleared the area around the van, which was the thing that we would have done uh, and would have saved lives, but they hadn't cleared the body. Essentially, you know, that's where the uh, the vehicle was, and uh, so people were killed, unfortunately, because you know the device had been left, uh, the lorry had been left at a location and given a, a wrong location. Whether that was deliberate or that was an accident, um, not sure. So it was unfortunate. But you know, you look back on that and you think that is the reality of the risk that officers faced. In the heart of the City of London, the IRA parked a van outside 30 St Mary Axe, the home of the Baltic Exchange. Inside the van was a bomb made from 100 pounds of Semtex wrapped in a tonne of fertiliser. At 9.20pm, it exploded. The 100 pound bomb was the biggest to go off in London since World War II. And, and you know, some people say, well, that wasn't a conventional way to have dealt with it, but you know, you know, uh, good officers are inquisitive, good officers are, are curious, and with the information that you had, that you know, there was a time that this was destined to 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 go off. Then you thought you had a bit of time. You wanted to check. You wanted to verify, which is what they were doing, but hugely, hugely risky. So at that time, uh, and and you say, you know, there was a Bishopsgate bomb two years later. Um, and, and we were, you know, those large improvised devices. And the intention was so that the police saw it, the police evacuated the area. The, you know, the intention was for structural damage for those incidents rather than, um, rather than killing people. There were other, there were other um, terrorist attacks that were, were targeted at, you know, people, the army, um, prominent people who were killed. Um, but you're always at risk, you know, and then we went through the instructions and, you know, I used to go to work dressed in half uniform and a, and a jacket or a coat on top. The instruction was you don't travel in, you know, uh, as we described at the time, half blues. Um, you don't leave uniforms in your car. You don't leave anything that identifies you as a police officer. Um, you know, when you go out socially, you have to be circumspect. Uh, and it was, you know, the, the, the risks were real. Uh, and genuine, you know, for you as an individual, for you as a police officer, for you working as a uh, in police buildings uh, on on police operations, um, really, really tense. You just had to be careful, um, you know, for yourselves and for your family and friends, because you know, if you were caught up in anything, then you would have innocent people with you, you know, whether they're family and friends. So the risks were were genuine uh, at that time, you know, around the um, the nineties. When I worked in the city, uh, and that that transformed the city really, which I this is why I said it was a milestone moment. You know, the city was great in terms of it was brilliant. You know, the best fraud department in in the country, probably one of the best in the world, and the city specialised in fraud investigation. But the city then had to develop, you know, skills in protection, in um, you know, and counterterrorism. Um, and, and that was magnificent. And, and, you know, for one little part, I was, you know, involved in the periphery in the development of what turned out to be ANPR today. Uh, it was some of the work I did in the policy unit. So it was a real uh, advantageous time for learning about a change, a significant change in the operational requirement of an organisation like the city. So adding that terrorism skill and everything else, uh, in addition to actually not only learning about the technological requirements and advancement, but learning about the policing styles 
um, underground with officers, public order training, um, counter-terrorism training. It was, a, it was a magnificent time to be a police officer in, in that sense of learning about um, new risks, new dangers and developing new ways to, to deal with the, with the risks. In 2001, you were promoted to the rank of inspector, but prior to that in 2000, you were part of the crucially important team that delivered training to all officers in the City of London Police after the publication of the McPherson Report, which is another huge milestone moment for British policing in terms of its understanding and its recognition and its failures, importantly, of investigating a very serious crime against a young black man. Could you tell us about the importance and the impact the McPherson Report had on you as an officer and the importance of implementing that training and understanding of the effects of that report and what it meant for, for British policing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I want to combine my response with um, the initial talk of leadership. Um, the report itself... Uh, I've got to say, I, I was. Uh, it was a time when I was part of the National Black Police Association, um, and some of the work that we've been doing then. So we were we were aware of, um, and I had more more awareness and more um, involvement in in terms of knowledge of the report um, and the work that was going on and the evidence was being taken because um, that part of my life interest. Um, professional interest meant that I kept closely involved with, with the evidence given in, uh, uh, and the evidence gathering with the inquiry team. And when the report came out, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I was like colleagues in the Black Police Association waiting for it and, and actually read it and really you know, um, scrutinised it. But in terms of a leadership um, involvement in it, and that really influenced me, um, so I was in the city at the time and... The commissioner in the city at the time um, was a guy called Perry Nove. Uh, and Perry had been a commander in the Met um, when some of the review, re-review of the investigation of the murder of Stephen was taking place. And if you read the report, Perry is one of few people who come out with any credibility in the way that they acted as leaders uh, in the investigation, reinvestigation of the murder of, of Stephen. Perry was the commissioner at the time. The report came out. Uh, I was a, um, a detective inspector on, on division um, and I knew the colleagues who were in, in the training school and they gave a summary to Perry and one of the things that um, uh, they recommended was that we train um, every single member of the service, the force, the City of London Police, in um, three of the recommendations, and, and a lot of the recommendations were put in place, but three of them, you know, valuing cultural diversity and and and, um, and two others. Um, and the commissioner, Perry, and his senior leadership team accepted it. So we put together, uh, they, training team, colleagues there, put together a training package, and uh, I was um, asked... Uh, and privileged to be asked to be part of the training team that delivered the training, uh, which lasted over a year. Um, and I guess the, the reason I was asked um, was, you know, operational credibility, um, been involved in the work, and, um, you know, I was doing some studying at the time in terms of uh, um, policing, police culture, 
so I was asked to be part of that training um, team that delivered the training for the period of a year. And, and in terms of a leadership uh, perspective, I thought Perry, and Perry was a fantastic human being, great police officer. Um, but as a leader, he was, for me, he's one of the people that I see as a role model. He took on, and, and, I, and I guess he'd been involved in, in the reinvestigation of, um, um, uh, of the murder of Stephen, but he decided that he was going to do this. He was going to commit for every single member of the organisation to be trained. He was going to commit the time and the money um, and went to the um, um, police authority to get the funding for it. But as a leader, he felt it was the right thing to do. He accepted it. And it's a way of actually improving the knowledge and improving and changing the policing delivery uh, for the City of London. And some people might say, well, the City of London is only a square mile. It is. But, you know, um, over nearly half a million people came in there during the day. We ended up with probably 7,000 living residents in the city. So there was a massive number of people to influence. Um, but he did it because it was the right thing to do. Um, and if I was going to say something controversial, it would be just wish we had that level of leadership, acceptance, movement, change today in many areas of policing um, that he displayed back then in 2000. So from, from a leadership perspective, it taught me a lot, you know, um, doing the right thing, being courageous and actually going with the thing that helps deliver a, a service that benefits not only your officers, but to the public. Um, in terms of the ramifications of um, talking about race, which is what it was about, talking about race in the workplace um, was also significant um, because you know we, we know now talking about race in the police institution, police services is still challenging. But at the time, it was challenging on the back of the criticism um, of the style of policing services that was delivered in the investigation of the murder. It was a really challenging thing to try and do um, because many officers felt they'd been personally tarnished and the training was, was perceived by many as a form of redemption. You know, you've not been particularly good in the past. We're going to put you through this process. You're going to get redeemed. You're going to come out the other side, shiny, bright, knowledgeable, and all the, you know, lack of knowledge that you had before was going to be stripped away. And that made it really difficult, you know. Um, and that made it really difficult So people were thinking, well, I'm a good person. I've tried my best. I, I do my work really well. I've got no intention to be racist or discriminatory. You know, why do I have to go through it? You know, why do we have to talk about this, you know? Um, so in that sense, and the discomfort around talking about race made it really, really challenging. Um, so from that perspective, being involved in part of the training team to do that was really daunting. I, and, and, I, and I will say to you, uh, there wasn't a day that I went in to start the training when I did not have apprehension, tension, butterflies in my stomach of how was it going to go today, you know, um, what was it going to be like. You know, people weren't disrespectful, people weren't um, abusive, but you could feel the tension, you can feel the apprehension, you know, um, with people that I'd worked with, people that I knew really well, you know, just trying to say, 
this is a good thing to do. Um, but we're coming from a place of being judgmental. Um, and that, again, that was another massive learning exercise to how do you create an environment? You know, you've got the um, policy decision, the strategic decision that this will be, you know, we will do this as an institution, but then you've got the reality of how do you make that happen on the ground, sitting in a room with colleagues and a whole day of training going through a whole range of different topics. How do you make that happen sustainable for a whole day, every single day for a year? Um, you know, it, 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 was, it, was like, it was a privilege, but it's a learning in, in how you build resilience and how you, how you influence and encourage um, colleagues of different ranks, different levels, different grade to engage uh, in something that some of them found really difficult, others found uh, really welcoming. Um, but I hope in the end all found really useful. I think it's an important moment just to remember that today, as we record this interview, is the is the anniversary of Stephen's death, and uh, so I suppose just our thoughts, obviously, with Doreen and, and Neville's and Stephen's family, who will no doubt be taking a moment to reflect on their their son's life. His death had ramifications well beyond the understandable trauma and heartache suffered by his family and friends. My client Neville Lawrence has asked me to read his statement. My life was torn apart by the senseless murder of my son over 18 years ago. I am therefore full of joy and relief that today, finally, two of my son's killers have been convicted for his murder. Although police believe five young men were directly involved in the attack on Stephen Lawrence, there has only ever been one successful prosecution, eight years ago, where two men, Gary Dobson and David Norris, were convicted of murder. It's been an incredible period in policing, having to recognise that it has made mistakes. I wanted to ask you, did you believe at the time when the McPherson report came out, because, and, and this word has been used in the Casey report equally and, and hasn't been, um, say, endorsed, isn't being used by Sir Mark Rowley, the term institutionally racist. Uh, pe previous people that I've interviewed have said that the Met and other police services are more likely to be institutionally incompetent than they are institutionally racist. Do you agree with that? No, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I, the Met are more likely to be institutionally incompetent institutionally racist and, and I think um, so th so this is this is my view um, and when we look at the definition of institutional racism um, it talks about I interpret it's talking about outward focus you know the service that an institution delivers to people and for some of those people yeah it's inappropriate inadequate because of uh, thoughtful process um, because of you know some intentional some non-intentional but it's outwardly focused when senior officers junior officers interestingly enough the um, um, uh, the um, head of the federation national federation has actually opened he's said that he believes that uh, uh, the police service is introducingly racist um, when you take that definition, then it's very clear from stat statistics that we have in terms of delivery of policing services, you know, whether it's stop and search, whether it's externally, whether it's misconduct issues internally, it fits that definition. 
So in my view, in my personal view, yes, I do think, you know, the police service is institutionally racist in the way it delivers services, policing services to certain sections of the community. Yeah? I also think, you know, and we now we're finding it all along, the evidence proves, um, and, and you know, the evidence proves Dame Louise Casey's report is evidence-based, supports, you know, her finding that, you know, the institution is um, institutionally misogynistic and homophobic. The real challenge I see is the sense of lack of acceptance means, I, I, I use the word we, I'm not going to address the issue. Also, keep focusing on the internal elements, you know, when senior officers say, well, judge me in so many period of time, you know, what is a year, two years, three years, you put the focus internally. This is not about the internal competence. This is about the external service delivery. That's the way I inter interpret institutional racism, institutional misogyny, institutional homophobia. Turn the focus round. Judge the service that the organisation is delivering in a year's time, in two years' time, in three years' time, in five years' time. Let the people who are actually on the receiving end of that service be the judge as to whether or not you're providing a service that's appropriate, adequate to all sections of the community. Because until the service stops looking internally and stops saying, judge us, yeah, and, and, and turn and say, judge our service to you, then we're going to still have this problem. And it's still going to remain. There won't be an acceptance. There won't be a movement forward. There is highly unlikely to be a change in the service that the institution, i.e. the police institution, police services across the country, deliver to people uh, from certain sections of the community. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Chief Superintendent Victor Elisa, QPM. In part two of my sit-down conversation with Victor, he and I discussed the moment he felt that a repeat of the 2011 riots was imminent after the verdict into the death of Mark Duggan was handed down. For the first time in his career, Victor actually felt that his personal safety and that of his officers was in imminent danger as he heard and felt the crowd's anger, frustration and upset from a decision they did not agree with. Victor was the voice of the Met that evening and worked tirelessly with both local leaders and his staff to ensure the repeat of 2011 didn't occur. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited,